The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles this morning. We continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 7 now, looking at verses 1 through 13, exposing vain worship and espousing heart worship. So one of the greatest issues of the human soul stands in front of us this morning in this text, and that is of genuine worship. Worship from a pure heart. Worship that engulfs your soul. Worship that is a fragrant offering to your creator, your God, the lover of your soul. True heartfelt worship. That's what's in front of us here. It's not difficult to make the case that establishing that worship in human hearts is the entire purpose of Scripture of the gospel, of the work of God and the original creation, and the work of Christ in redemption, the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, that we human beings created in the image of God would genuinely worship God from our hearts for all eternity. That's it. And against this, arrayed against this precious thing, are three of its greatest enemies, legalism, traditionalism, and hypocrisy. Legalism, the belief that God accepts our worship based on how well we keep a set of rules and regulations. In that case, our focus is on ourself and our own performance. Traditionalism, the belief that true worship of God consists in man-made patterns crafted by human beings generations ago and handed down unchanged from generation to generation, keeping that tradition. That's the essence of worship. And then there's hypocrisy, putting on a show. A show for God and others when our hearts are actually far from God. The whole thing is false. It's a lie. Hypocrisy. These are the issues in front of us in Mark 7, 1 through 13. Now, the setting in Mark's gospel, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 plus women and children. He's walked on water. And then we get a quick summary at the end of of chapter 6 of a healing ministry that's comprehensive and mind-boggling. There's just a summary of perhaps as many as thousands of miracles that were done, miracles mostly of healings. Even of people that just touched the hem of his garment were instantly healed by his power. Jesus at this moment, it could be argued, is at the pinnacle of of his temporary popularity. I mean, the crowds are swelling with anticipation. In John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, some of them want to take him by force and make him king. They don't really understand who he is or what his kingdom is, but they want to do that. And so, Jesus is a threat to the religious establishment, and a a delegation of religious police 
is sent, uh, self-appointed investigators, scribes and Pharisees come to observe Jesus and not friendly at all, but to try to find fault with him and shut him down if they can. And so we see right away in this outline the legalist charge against Jesus, ceremonial defilement. Look at verses 1 through 5. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. Parentheses, explanation, Mark gives his Gentile audience, probably Romans, didn't understand these things, so now we get this explanation. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other uh, traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, end parentheses. So the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with, food with unclean hands? So they're making a charge against Jesus by means of his disciples of breaking tradition through this ceremonial defilement. Now, who are these scribes and Pharisees? These were professional legalists. This is a great escalation of conflict with the Jewish authorities. As I said, a delegation is sent from Jerusalem to check Jesus' rising influence and find fault, with them if they can, find fault with them if they can. Try to find a way to put a stop to Jesus. Pharisees were a religious party, a group of religious leaders who had maneuvered their way in Jewish society to the top pinnacle of esteem in terms of their spirituality and their religion. They made the meticulous study of the law of Moses their top priority and then dispensing rulings and judgments based on that, Pharisees. Now the scribes were priests from the temple area who, whose day-to-day work was that of copying the law of Moses letter by letter. Uh, there weren't printing presses back then. It was all done by hand, and these scribes were entrusted with the task. But beyond that, they were uh, teachers of the laws that they read, and they taught their interpretation of Scripture to the people. So scribes and Pharisees are the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. Both of them are legalists who think that their right standing with God is based on how well they keep the laws of God, and they generally thought they kept them just fine. All these commands I have kept from my youth, they would say, something like that. And furthermore, they accepted the trappings of honor in Jewish society, whether at banquets or in the marketplace or other places. They loved that kind of thing. They loved to be honored and to be, have the most important seats at the banquets. That's who they were. Now, what is the origin of their religious legalism? Where did all that come from? Well, we could start with the exile to Babylon. Um, and in the exile, the remnant that was exiled was made aware very plainly by the ministry of Ezekiel and Jeremiah that it is because they have violated the laws of God for generations that this exile has come. They have broken God's laws and have gone over into idolatry and wickedness. And for this reason, most of them were killed with the sword, famine, and plague. And a small remnant was exiled to Babylon. Daniel is very aware of this and prays, godly man, prays in Daniel 9-11 this prayer, 
all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. They got it. They got the message. At least Daniel did and godly exiled Jews like him. They understood. So, when in the course of time, under the rule of of Cyrus the Great of Persia, a small remnant, 42,000, was allowed to come back and repopulate the promised land, Jerusalem. They were committed to the law of God. And even if within a short amount of time there was some of them that intermarried, Ezra, Nehemiah pulled out their hair and were zealous that they would not fall into the same patterns of wickedness that their ancestors had fallen into. Ezra 7.10, it says, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That all sounds good, right? Ezra was a godly man studying God's word. But in the course of time, patterns of legalism and traditionalism emerged that were very corrupt based on this initial zeal. Schools of religious lawyers developed who spent their full time debating this or that law trying to nail down exactly what they're supposed to do in every case in life. Scribes and Pharisees were in that heritage. They arose and studied the law more carefully than anyone else and appointed themselves ethical police over to the daily life actions of others. All right, that's a simple answer to the origin of their legalism. Let's go broader and deeper. There's a deeper answer to the origin of legalism. It's just in the wicked and sinful heart of man. We sinners want to fix our problems ourselves. We want to save ourselves. Most of us aren't denying there's a problem. Vertically with God, horizontally with others, but we want to solve it. We want to make up our own religion that'll solve it. We want to follow our own rules. We want to be the master of our own fate and the captain of our own souls spiritually. We want to save ourselves. And this is true all over the world. Every religion except Christianity is codified self-salvation. Self-salvation. That's what we want to do. And so look at verse 7, Mark 7, 7. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. It's a man-made religion. That's what it is. That's the origin of the legalism. That's where it's coming from. Now, scribes and Pharisees, their highest value is conformity to legal tradition. So by the time of Jesus, as I said, there are well-developed schools of rabbis who spent their full time discussing and teaching minutia of the law. Now, a key issue here is the law of God itself was deemed too complicated for average, ordinary people to understand. There's clear evidence of this that these elitists considered the common group of people to be a rabble, untrained rabble who could not just read and hear God's law and get it right. So they needed them to interpret it. And so they began to give additional insights, rules, and regulations that were beyond the scripture. And so it went, rabbi so-and-so commenting on rabbi such-and-such. Uh, who made observations saying this and that and therefore the other. And it was all written down. This heritage of rabbi this and rabbi that and, and all this kind of thing. So these verbal traditions were erected like kind of a safety fence around the law of God. Keeping kind of a safe zone 
around God's law with the conception being if you keep the tradition of the elders, you're certain to be acceptable to God because we're going beyond what God requires. And therefore, he must accept you if you just follow our traditions. Now, in the second century AD, second century after Christ, a rabbi, Jehuda organized the rabbinic teachings that have been passed on into a book called the Mishnah. And in time, there arose more and more traditions and disputations and statements based on the Mishnah itself, of course. And those additional disputations and wranglings over the Mishnah were organized into another book called the Gemara. And the Mishnah plus the Gemara together is called the Talmud. Twelve centuries of Jewish rabbis wrangling over originally the Word of God, but over mostly over their own traditions. That's the Talmud, and it's the authority for most Jews in the world that are religious. They are Talmudic scholars. Now, do you not see behind all of this an astonishingly disparaging attitude toward the Word of God? What we see in Mark 7 and Jesus' accusation against them came true concerning the Talmud. The Talmud came to be put above the Word of God, by far above it. The traditions of men totally supplanted the laws of God. Listen to these statements from the Talmud itself. Quote, the sacred scriptures is like water, the Mishnah is like wine, but the Gemara is aromatic wine. That's a clear hierarchy. The lowest level is the Word of God. What you want to get up is to that beautiful level of the Gemara. Or again, quote, My son, give heed to the words of the scribes rather than to the words of the law. Wow. And again this one. He who transgresses the words of the scribes sins more gravely than the transgressors of the words of the law. End quote. That's from the Talmud. Astonishing that the opinions of human beings can take the place of the perfect word of God. So, their accusation of Christ is ceremonial defilement. They stood around Jesus and they watched him and his disciples eating their meal. And they accused him. I mean, that's, I mean, if I can just say, creepy. Well, what are you doing here? But they're just standing watching them eat. Verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now, Mark, as we said, gives us this detailed backstory about these comprehensive traditions. Let's read again verse 3 and 4, the Pharisees and all the Jews. See that? The Pharisees and all the Jews. So everybody's doing this stuff. The Pharisees have won the day. Everybody's following this, all right? Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, etc. So this is an elaborate, carefully developed system of ritual washings that covered almost every area of life mandated by the elders in their traditions. Notice clearly their accusation is not that Jesus and his disciples are violating the law of God. They're not even thinking about that. Because it's not stated anywhere in the law of Moses. You're not going to find it. There are not these washings laid out 
in the law of Moses. This is all human tradition. Now, don't misunderstand. This has nothing to do with germs. It's not like if only they had that hand cleanser stuff that kills 99.99% of all the germs. You know, if they had that, we wouldn't have this problem. It has nothing to do with germ theory, which didn't come into Louis Pasteur and all that. That's not what we're dealing with here. Not at all. This is about religion. If you don't wash like this, you're not acceptable vertically to God. Okay, that's their charge. What's Jesus' charge against the legalists? Now it goes back. Arrogance over God's word. Let's reverse the order that Jesus takes. Let's not walk through it in the order in the text. Let's go later and then work back. Okay? Let's address their arrogance over God's word and then get to the deeper issue of worship. First, their arrogance concerning God's word. Verse 7. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Man-made rules concocted from the imaginations and morals and thoughts of men without the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. And he said to them... You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. In other words, you make a regular habit of doing this. You are continually doing this. You're setting aside God's word to observe your own man-made traditions. This is a habit you have. Now, I believe Jesus is being sarcastic here. The Greek word kalos is well. You're really good at this. You're fine at this. You have developed this skill to a high level. There's a level of sarcasm here. You're really good at it. You do this well. You're experts at this evil thing of setting aside God's word to favor your traditions. Then he gives a case study. He brings in a case study. A clear example. Look at verses 10 through 13. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then he expands it in verse 13, the very end of the phrase of today's reading. And you do many things like that. In other words, this is just one case. You do this all the time. So this is a serious attack on the word of God. And notice how Jesus clearly contrasts tradition with God's word. Matthew's account makes it even sharper. Matthew 15:3 or 15:5. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say, dot, dot, dot. I mean, that's about as clear as it gets. For God said, but you say. That's the whole system that we're dealing with here. The whole system of legalism and traditionalism was a serious attack on the word of God. Now, legalism is fundamentally adding to and subtracting from the word of God. Because you think there's something wrong with it. They added requirements that God did not give and thereby they overturned the requirements that God did give. So what is this case study? We don't know that much about it. We know what's written here. But this has to do with the, the habit or the practice of korban, a gift devoted to God. So sometime before Jesus, generation before, the rabbis decided that if any um, Jewish man, let's say, uh, 
had a sum of money or a possession or even all of his money or all of his possessions and he put somewhat of a fence around it and called it Korban. He still owns it, still his, but he designates it a gift devoted to God. Then it's kind of off limits for anything else, including using it to help aging parents, you know, in their old age, caring for them financially. So this concept became a nasty loophole through which people drove huge ox carts. Nowhere found in scripture, just something they made up. The fundamental issue here when it comes to the word of God is the sufficiency and the clarity of scripture. The legalist is adding new laws because he feels God's laws are insufficient to get the job done for a good life on earth insufficient. We need some additional help here. God missed some things. And furthermore, it's not clear. So you need us, uh, the expert teachers, to explain stuff to you or you'll never get it because you're an unwashed rabble. You need us. So it's impugning the clarity of God's Word. Either way, do you not see the breathtaking arrogance toward Scripture, toward the Word of God? Now, this is exactly why God condemned this very practice before it ever came. Many times, Deuteronomy 4.2, do not add to what I command to you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. It couldn't be clearer. Don't do this thing. Don't add to, don't subtract from. By the way, what does that imply God's saying about his word? It's perfect. You can't make it better by adding or subtracting. Again, Proverbs 35 and 6, it says, Every word of God is flawless. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you as a liar. It couldn't be clearer. whole Bible ends with a warning to not add to or take away from anything in the book of Revelation and by extension the whole 66 books of the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Christ in this case study, perfectly upholds the law of God as it is written. The example Christ cites is the fifth command of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments came down from on high, came down from the mouth of God, written by the finger of God when God descended in fire on Mount Sinai. And he gave the Ten Commandments uh, to the Jewish nation. They come in two tables, a vertical table, the first four commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, sums it up vertically. Then you got horizontally, love your neighbors yourself. And the first of the horizontal table, other people is, honor your father and mother. And the concept here is a child born into a family must learn to submit gladly to parental authority. Honoring is something you do in your heart. And out of that heart flows a pattern of obedience, a pattern of delighted obedience from child to parent that is foundational to all the other horizontal relationships they'll live in in the rest of their lives. You've got to learn this from the start. The two great commandments uh, specifically to children, there are two great commandments, I shouldn't use that language, but the two central commandments are honor and obey. Honor your father and mother, treat them with respect in your heart, and then obey what they command. Ephesians 6, 4. That's it. Now, honoring, it goes far beyond lip service and all that. It's just a state of heart. It's, it's giving esteem, a high place in your mind and heart to your parents. 
Christ upholds that. He upholds the authority of parents over their children. And he even goes so far as to cite the death penalty concerning parents. He said anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Exodus 21, 17. Boy, this should inform our family life, shouldn't it? It should inform our parenting. When you parents bring home a little child, an infant from the hospital, being instruments of God, that they will at, at the right time understand this commandment and live it out, that's central to parenting. It's not because you're so great. I'm a parent. You're not so great. But it's because they need to understand God is behind this and saying it, it to them. And they must. There's so much disrespect from child to parent. And God doesn't coddle it at all. Jesus says it's worthy of death. Thanks be to God that Jesus died on the cross to take away the death penalty for us sinners. This is a serious matter. So, Christ is extremely distressed with the scribes and Pharisees' arrogant handling of the perfect word of God. But now let's get to the deeper charge. The deeper charge is hypocrisy in worship. You have to go back in the text for that. It's the one he starts with. Look at verse 6 and 7. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Isaiah 29, 13. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah, in his day, exposed a problem among his own countrymen that's still with us today. Hypocrisy and worship. Now, seven centuries before Jesus was born, Isaiah begins his prophecy with an expose on the Jewish hypocrisy and formalism in their religious machinery. It was running like a machine, talking about the animal sacrificial system and the temple and the cycle of three festivals and, and daily animal sacrifice. It was, a, it was a big machine going on in Isaiah's day. In Isaiah 1, 11 through 14, this is what God says about it. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And yet they're all commanded in the law of Moses to be done. What's the problem? Hypocrisy. They don't feel it in their hearts. It's just a machine that's running week after week, year after year. As in Isaiah's day, so in Christ's day with the scribes and Pharisees. And may I say, as in Christ's day, so in our day. We're a very religious country. We drive by so many churches to get to this church. Many of them are filled with people. Very religious. But here's the question. Is it possible that the scathing critique Jesus gave these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain is true of us today. 
So what is this, this issue of hypocrisy? What is hypocrisy? Well, hypocrite is a, is, a, is a person who acts righteous when they're not, let's say. Or a person who says one thing and does another. They don't practice what they preach. Claiming to have moral standards to which you don't actually conform. The word hypocrite is literally a Greek word brought straight over, pretty much letter for, for letter, into the English. It means an actor. The Greek word meant an actor. You remember the, the symbol of, of dramatic arts? You got the two masks, you know, the smiley mask and the sad mask. That symbol, th those masks were things that those Greek actors would hold in front of their faces. You know, happy or sad, that kind of thing. They're actors in a drama, okay? So they do this, they play this role, but they don't feel any of it. It's just a show, which they do for the audience. Now, in our culture, we give a very high place to actors and actresses, don't we? And we ask their, their opinions on the economy. <laughs> you know, it's incredible that, you know, the, the role, the, these, these people. And, you know, we can well applaud their talents and skills at acting. It's really quite remarkable. You can watch the same individual in multiple movies and the same person is playing a, I don't know, a homeless street person in one movie and a Nobel Prize winning physicist in another and a president in another and then, you know, a captain of a sailing vessel in another. It's like, wow, how do they do it? What range as actors are incredible. I've often wondered what it would be like to be married to a really skillful actor. I mean, in real life. And you see all their movies and all the same faces that they're giving you when they're expressing love or whatever they've given to other people in a movie. I, would you ever be secure in that relationship? I mean, do you really love me or is this just like that scene in that movie back then? I mean, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe that's why so many of those marriages don't last very long. I don't know. But there's this acting going on. Is any of it real? And the scribes and Pharisees played at being righteous. They played at it. But their hearts were far from God. God was never their audience. Jesus said it plainly in Matthew 23. Everything they do is done for others to see. He said in Matthew 23. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So what is hypocrisy in worship? Well, it's acting reverent when you're not. So what is it? What is true worship? What are we talking about? Is it not a heart aflame with the glory of God? A mind captivated by God's nature? Captiva captivated by God's great actions and history? God's nature, his power, his compassion, his tenderness, his mercies, his holiness, his righteousness, and all of his great achievements in creation and in the exodus and the history of Israel and then especially in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Is this not true worship? But a hypocrite doesn't feel any of this. It's not genuine. None of that moves the needle, really. 
Now, along with this issue of hypocrisy comes the problem of traditionalism. Look at verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Again, verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And then again, verse 7. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Three different times. It's tradition, 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 traditionalism. Now, what is that? What is traditionalism? How is it different than traditions? Are they related? Well, traditionalism, I believe, is elevating a past pattern to a, a level of religious permanence equal to or even superior to the Word of God. That's traditionalism. It's belief in the traditions. And they can never be changed. I think somewhat it's like trying to recapture a beautiful spiritual moment for all time by the outward trappings that were around it at the time. Like some things happened and that was awesome. And from then on we'll do those some things like it's a scientific experiment. And then you'll get the spiritual moment that way. I remember hearing a story of a, a one local church that decades and decades ago had an amazing Sunday. Word of God was preached powerfully. Spirit of God is poured out in power. And a revival broke out in that church. Many people were weeping, falling down, crying out, and genuine work happened in their lives. And the closing hymn that day was, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Great hymn. I love that hymn. So for the next 50 years... They played that song at the end of every worship service in that church. One day, a courageous worship leader changed it. Different song. What do you think, Wes? Big moment. Incredible courage. What is, that's traditionalism. It's like there's this beautiful butterfly, and then you capture it in acrylic like a paperweight. And, and just put it down there heavily and it's not going to move. It's not alive. That's traditionalism. It's in, in imposing that moment as a rule for future generations to follow. Now, there is an essential place for tradition. Tradition means just that which is handed on. We need a respect for church history. We need a respect for the past. We need to know we are not the first generation of Christians. Please not if you know that. You're not the first generation. Thank you. Lots of stuff was worked out before us and has been pa passed on. And we're not reinventing the wheel every time. We Americans, we love what's hot and cutting edge and trending and all that sort of stuff. And often that's poured over into worship over the last 25 years. And you're looking for the same kind of thing, what's hot and trendy and all that. And so there isn't a respect for tradition. But there's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. Doctrines have been handed down to us from the apostolic era. Paul says very plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The word I passed on in the Latin is traditio. That's where we get the English for tradition. It's handed down. Nothing wrong with that. 
And there's nothing wrong with a lot of things being handed down. But there are man-made rituals and patterns that get encrusted and they have equal if not greater authority to the Word of God. Now that's traditionalism. And that's what's going on here. All right, so what then is true worship? Three key observations. Number one, it's not man-made, but it's initiated by God. It's revelation and response. God reveals, we respond. Remember Peter's confession of Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Do you hear that? Revealed by God, Peter responds. That's all worship is that way. Starts with God, he reveals, and then we respond. Secondly, it's not based on human rules and regulations, but based on the word of God. Where is the record of God's revelation? Only one place, here in the Bible. So our job is to study the scriptures and then worship flows from our understanding of God as revealed in the scripture. That's where it comes from. So it's based on the word of God. And thirdly, it's not hypocritical, but it's a reflection of a heart that's truly drawn after God, drawn drawn close to God. Verse six, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So true worship is a heart drawn close to God based on the word of God. And it involves awe, reverence, fear, wonder, amazement, tears, shouts of joy, exultation, surprise, astonishment. It's a rich array of feelings. But before any of them is truth. Truth first, then the feelings, and then the outward actions. That's what true worship is. That's not hypocrisy. Now, as we close today, I want to just focus on this one statement, this one key issue. Look at verse 6. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I just want to ask you, is that true of you today or not? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Let me turn it around and, and let's say for, a, I hope, a large percent of you, uh, percentage of you, it's not true today. It's not true as you sat here or as you stood here for worship. It's not true. Well, if that is the case, that it is not true that you honor God with your lips but your hearts are far from them, then you ought to thank God for your salvation. You ought to thank God for the work done in you by the Holy Spirit of God. He worked in you to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that is sensitive and responsive to God. No, not perfectly, but you do love him. And you do yearn to please him. And you you can't wait to go to heaven. And you're hungry to know more about him. That's who you are. If that's all true of you, praise God. God has saved you through the work of Christ on the cross and by the Holy Spirit. But let's turn it back. What if it is true? What if it's true that you're honoring God with your lips, with your outward behavior, but your heart is actually far from God? One of two things is true. One is that you may not be a Christian. You're not born again. Could be that 
you could say to me, I'm actually not claiming to be a Christian. I came here today because a friend invited me. Okay, but regardless of whether your lips or whatever, the point is your heart, you're acknowledging your heart's far from God. That's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save lost people like you and like I was. And he came to go get us and bring us to God, to bring us to God. And he came to shed his blood on the cross for all of the many transgressions you've committed while your heart was far from God, to pay for it all in his own blood. And God raised him from the dead to show that that payment was accepted. So I'm just crying out to you and I'm saying, don't let it be the case even later today or next week that your heart is far from God. All right, suppose that this is a true statement of you, but you actually are a Christian. It happens to all of us. Well, what's gone on is you become distracted by earthly circumstances. It could be physical pain on your part or a loved one. It could be a financial difficulty. It could be that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things is alluring and distracting you and your heart is far from God. And maybe even you've been in a habit of playing at your Christianity. Well, the text is standing over you today to plead with you to repent, to acknowledge that you're not loving Jesus with the same love you used to have, that your heart's been drifting from him. And the Lord is standing in front of you now, pleading with you to repent and to come back to God and to live openly and honestly and passionately for him. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to listen to these words. Uh, We thank you for Jesus' courage and boldness in telling the truth. Lord, as the psalmist said very plainly in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and show me. If there's any offensive way in me, show it to me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be genuine followers of Christ. So please work in us by your redeeming grace. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.